recently we have been watching um, on the news as the Me Too movement has unfolded and have been horrified by that and, and yet captivated as story after story has been shared and as scores of people have been taken down by allegations of sexual misconduct in the workplace. And this week, um, if you have been watching the news, you've witnessed the trial and the sentencing of Larry, Larry Nassar, who is the former Team USA gymnastics doctor. And hundreds of different athletes have come forward to share their stories of abuse over the course of the decades that he worked as the team doctor. And during the trial, one of the women, um, Rachel Den Hollander, stood and facing Larry, uh, gave uh, words directly to him that were incredibly powerful. And so we have just a brief clip. It's about 50 seconds of Rachel um, to begin us this morning. So go ahead and listen to her as she shares. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Um, her entire testimony is, is an eloquent presentation of the Christian story, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the whole thing. Um, I just want to read again a couple of the things that she said. She said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And yet this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Well, these words from Rachel are profoundly timely um, for all of us, because as horrifying as it has been to hear the stories of these women, stories of Larry Nassar's depravity, the truth is that each one of us is a whole heck of a lot closer to being not Rachel, but Larry, than we would like to believe. We are not all that different from Larry. One good parent, one bad choice, a series of wrong decisions, and most of us could be in Larry's shoes, if we're honest. Well, our scripture for today comes from the book of Ephesians, and uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul from prison to a Gentile audience, uh, folks who are converts from the Hellenistic mystery religions who are living in and around this large international port city of Ephesus. The people that Paul is writing to were a diverse crowd, and they were largely affluent. And so the people that he's writing to, the context he's writing to, is not all that different from Seattle, from those of us sitting here in this room. And the passage that we're going to look at today, which is out of chapter 2, is one that offers incredible good news. News that the Ephesians have been saved. News that should have them shouting for joy. And yet Paul is afraid that they are missing the enormity of the gift that they have been given because they don't recognize their need for it. Well, we in our relevant 
relative comfort and affluence run the same risk. The risk of missing out on the sweet, sweet love of grace, of, of, sorry, the love and grace of God extended to us in Jesus. Because we, like Larry, like the Ephesians, don't recognize how desperately we need that love and that grace. And so my invitation to us this morning is to do the uncomfortable work of allowing Paul's words um, to lead us into an encounter with our own brokenness. That's not the place we necessarily want to dwell. But I invite us to, to allow Paul to lead us there so that we can come to a place by the end of the service of more fully appreciating the love and grace and goodness of the gift that God has offered to us in Jesus. So I promise we're not going to stay uh, in that hard place, but I think that there's something important that happens for us when we allow ourselves to go through that. So listen as I read these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Lord, the journey that we're being invited on this morning is not a comfortable journey. Being asked to reflect on the brokenness not just in the world, but in our own lives. Lord, I pray that this would be a safe space, that your spirit would protect us from, from dwelling too long in guilt, but that you would allow us to connect fully enough so that we recognize the profound gift that you've offered to us in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, just prior to the verses that I read, um, Paul is going on at length about the rich blessing that is offered to us in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, happens about a dozen times in the course of chapter 1. We are chosen, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are united with one another in and through Jesus. But as chapter 2 begins, Paul's tone changes as he begins to talk about the effect of sin. And there's this transition phrase. He says, but as for you, but as for you, far from being forgiven and adopted because of your sin, you are dead. Now, the Greek word for sin here, hamartia, 
was a military word that was used in target practice for when someone missed the mark. So it, it means to be mistaken or to wander off of the path of righteousness. It means to do wrong. Now, this is what it means in Greek. However, I think if you were to walk into your workplace on Monday morning or uh, talk to the folks waiting around with you at Starbucks for your coffee and ask them what they think sin is, you would probably get vastly different answers. One of the most prevalent probably being, well, I don't even know that sin is really a thing. I don't really believe that sin even is. Because in our world, where even the concept of truth is argued, where right and wrong are subjective, the concept of sin, which is very black and white, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But as Christians, we have to wrestle with Scripture. And if we believe that Scripture is authoritative, that it is God's word for us, then we have to wrestle with that. And it's clear in Scripture that sin is. That there is, in fact, right and wrong, and that in choosing to do wrong, we sin. We have all sinned. Scripture is clear. We have all fallen short of the bar. And so if that is the case, then like disobedient children turn to look at their parents to see what the punishment is going to be, or like a patient diagnosed with an illness waiting for the doctor's prognosis, how bad is it, doc? If we accept that sin is a reality, that we are all guilty of sinning, then the next question is, all right, how bad is it? What is the result of sin? A little while ago, Mark and I took our four kids hiking at, I think it's Cougar Mountain in Issaquah. And we had been there before, and so, like, four years before. And so we thought, ah, we know where we're going. And so we hopped into the car, and we headed off without double-checking our directions. Well, halfway there, you know, Google Maps was not playing out for me, and we could not figure out where we had gone before, which was, you know, definitely, like, child-friendly. Uh, zero elevation gain, boardwalks through the woods. Like, this was our vision of what we were going to be doing this day. We could not find that part of the park. And so we finally ended up just pulling off uh, at a little trailhead where there were a few other cars parked and ignorantly heading off into the woods with our four children, six, five, four, and two. <clears throat> well, the first hour and a half was awesome. We had learned from folks like the watresses and had packed a bag full of junk food and were doling it out as we went, keeping the kids following us. We got into a thing where we were looking for slugs, and we have a great picture of Carter holding one this big that he named Carter, <laughs> because everything is Carter in his world. Um, it was really great. It was lovely. Uh, but then we came to a point where we lost the trail. I am not sure how this happened. I think Mark and I had a disagreement about which way to go. And suddenly, um, I am alone with the four children while Mark plows on the ahead down this hill where there is no sign of a trail. And I think we're talking to each other on the phone, and I have one child in my arms, and I have two child in hysterics, as I am literally bushwhacking my way down a hill through blackberry brambles and everything else, hoping that our car is that direction. 
Now, if sin is missing the mark, if sin is wandering from the path, then this picture of our family bushwhacking our way down the hill uh, could be a great picture of the result of sin in our lives, right? Sure, sin creates some less than ideal situations, but if we work hard enough, if we press on, we will eventually get back on course, get back to the car. Well, whether or not we would say that this is what we believe, functionally, this is how many of us live. As if our sin might make a little life a little bit more difficult, but in the end, it's all going to be okay. But Paul's language in these verses is a lot more dramatic than that. This is not the picture that Paul paints, at least here in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, right here at the beginning, he says, Friends, you are not just off course. You are not just one hill over from where you meant to be. You are dead as a result of your sin. Dead. The word here is devoid of life. One who has taken their last breath. You are lifeless, beyond revival. In 1977, the year that I was born... While the Western media was busy covering the death of Elvis Presley, on the other side of the world in Cambodia, there was a genocide taking place, a genocide that missed all of the Western news. The Khmer Rouge, which was a Cambodian Communist Party, had taken control of the Cambodian government two years prior with the goal of turning the country into a communist, rural, classless society. And so over the course of four years, they literally emptied the cities. They took all of the educated, um, affluent people out of the cities and put them into labor camps where over the course of the next four years, they starved and abused and literally worked to death a quarter of Cambodia's population, over two million people. There were so many dead that they began piling them in what were called killing fields. Thousands of killing fields scattered around the nation of Cambodia. So how bad is the result of sin? Well, I think that the Cambodian killing fields offer a more accurate image of the result of sin than my family's hiking misadventures. What Paul says to us in this passage is that in our sin, we are not merely a little off course. We are as dead as each body laying in those fields in the 70s. We are so bad off as a result of sin that it will take a miracle for us to be saved. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to dwell in that place. And most of us will spend a whole lot of energy not thinking about that. Pointing our finger at everybody else's sin. Lord knows just this morning I did that a bazillion times just with my kids, right? There would be harmony in my home if it weren't for you. Time out. (laughs) It would take a miracle for me to be saved. But praise be to Jesus, this is exactly what Ephesians 2 tells us has happened. 
in verse 4, after three verses of, of urging us to sit with the weight of our sin, Paul shifts the focus from us to God. Again, with just two short, verses, short words, he says, but God, you are dead in your sin, but God. And with these two words, we are alerted to the fact that there is a twist in the story, right? This story that sounds so much like a tragedy at the beginning actually may have a happily ever after. We were headed over a cliff. We had a one-way ticket to hell. And then, suddenly, we aren't. In verse 4, with just these two words, Paul shifts the direction. He says, your actions were to be despised, but God loves you. You were dead in your sin. But God gives you life. You were headed to hell, but he gave you a seat with him in heaven. You were being ruined by Satan, but God has taken you, has brushed you off, has recreated you, and has raised you up as his masterpiece. We have a few girls that are entering into junior high, not a lot of them here, but Um, For those of you who've had a junior high girl in your life at any point, picture a letter that they might write to a friend. I would imagine that if Anna writes notes or Lola, that there's probably a lot of exclamation points, right? A lot of glitter pens, circles, and, you know, a lot of feels, all the feels in a letter from a junior high girl. Every sentence ending with exclamation points trying to capture on paper what can hardly be contained in their soul. Well, this is the sort of language that Paul is using here. If we were to go back and and look at the the words that Paul uses in verses 4 through 10, he he is jumping up and down with delight at the miracle that has been extended to us, the magnificent kindness of God. Because Paul has been through the valley. If we know Paul's story, the beginning of his professional life was spent persecuting and seeking out Christians in order to kill them. Paul has a past. He has faced his demons, though. And by the grace of God, he has come out the other side. And he hopes the same thing for each one of us. One of my favorite passages of scripture is um, Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. So it's a vision that he received while he was living in exile in Babylon, along with all of the best and brightest of the people of Judah. And in the middle of this place, he receives this vision from the Lord. God actually picks him up and transplants him into a valley of dry bones, which I imagine looked much like those Cambodian killing fields. God sets him down in the middle of one of these. And he says, Ezekiel, look around. And don't just look around. I want you to walk back and forth. I want you to get a sense for the grossness of of where we are. And as Ezekiel stands there, kicking these bones around, God finally asks him, son of man, can these bones live again? Well, the obvious answer is no. 
No, there's no possible way. But the vision in Ezekiel 37 goes on. The Lord has Ezekiel stand in the midst of this vast, barren devastation and has him begin to speak words of life over these bones. Imagine what Ezekiel must have been thinking. (laughs) Yeah, right. My nation is in shambles. No one's listening to me. My nation's capital has just been destroyed. The dwelling place of God has been torn down. Yeah, right. But a wind begins to blow. Gentle at first. And then a little bit more forcefully. And imagine those bones on the ground are beginning to shift as the wind blows them and buffets them. And they they begin to shake and, and to rattle. And then all of a sudden, these dry, sun-bleached bones begin to come together. What in the world? Ezekiel is standing there absolutely shocked. The wind is blowing harder and harder. And then he looks and he begins to see that muscle and flesh are beginning to come back over these bones. These bones are are growing back up. They're being recreated into living bodies. That could still be a pretty nasty zombie movie movie at this point. (laughs) But then God breathes his spirit. (sighs) And life comes back into those bodies. And suddenly what was the most horrible devastation you could ever imagine becomes a teeming valley full of life. I love that story. Friends, left to our own devices, we have as much hope as a pile of sun-bleached bones. Left to our own devices, we are no different than Larry Nassar. We are a terminal patient on palliative care. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ. God has worked a miracle. It's already been done. God has saved us. And the best part is that our happily ever after has virtually nothing to do with us. It's not because we bushwhack a little bit harder through the wilderness that we've created. Our salvation is all about Jesus. It's in him. We are made alive again with Christ. We are raised from hell to a seat in heaven In Christ Jesus, we experience God's grace and profound love in Christ Jesus through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And the big question is not how, because there is no explaining the how of that vision, that valley of dry bones. The question is why? 
There's a story that's told of C.S. Lewis wandering into a gathering of Britain's finest scholars who are in the midst of a debate on Christianity's unique contributions to world religions. And they're throwing out all of these different possibilities. Well, maybe it's a resurrection that makes Christianity different. Well, no, because there's other stories and other religions of people being raised from the dead. Okay, well, maybe it's the incarnation. Well, no, because there's stories in other religions of gods who manifest in physical form. And C.S. Lewis kind of pipes up and he's like, well, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is Christianity's unique contribution. God chooses to save us. He chooses to breathe life into our lifeless bodies because God is a God of grace. He is a God who loves us. He loves us so much. It's easy to listen to the testimonies against people like Larry Nassar and to sit in judgment, to celebrate his sentencing and his conviction as justice. And it is justice. But it's a whole lot harder to turn the mirror upon ourselves, isn't it? And to recognize that we are just as deserving of God's justice as he is. But until we recognize how dead we are, apart from Jesus' work of grace and mercy, our future is no brighter than Larry's. God wants to work a miracle in us. He's waiting for us to recognize our need. He's waiting for us to accept the gift of new life, of a fresh start offered us in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus so that he can begin his work of recreating us, pulling our dry bones back together, covering them with flesh once again, breathing life into us. So the question for us this morning is, do you recognize your need? And if the answer is yes, then you are perfectly positioned to witness a miracle. If the answer is yes, then rise up and walk, dry bones, for your faith has made you well.